Well, good morning to everyone. It is March the 12th, 2023. The world is still counting time by Jesus. And that is significant. Let's have a prayer and we'll get, get to going. Dear Father, we thank you for the day. Thank you for the health and strength to be here. Father, we're grateful for your presence in our lives. We depend on that completely. We readily confess that we're needy people. And we do need your leading, protection, and your guidance, Father. And uh, we thank you for that. Thank you for the family here that we're able to share together. Pray your blessings today as we study your word and uh, pray that we'll, be, uh, we'll find some things encouraging in it or helpful to us. So we ask your blessing on this. Uh, Father, we know there are many who are ill and uh, with different situations. We all know different people. You know our hearts and our thoughts and we ask your blessings physically and spiritually and emotionally in those lives. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we, uh, we got to uh, Romans 8. Uh, I think we finished up with uh, verse 28 last week. Made the comment that in the context there, uh, of that section of that paragraph, Paul is talking about future events, future events, future events, future events, future events. And in the middle of all that is 828. Uh, all things uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good. My comment at that point was a lot of times I think it causes maybe some confusion on our part where we see a bad situation, a difficult situation, as we would look at it and think, boy, I don't know what's good in that. And there may not be much good in it at all. Uh, the point that I made in that uh, section I think he's talking about the future. All things work together for our good. Um, he's talking about eternal glory and uh, all the things that are coming, including our resurrection. And he puts that in the middle of that discussion. And it just uh, to be consistent about that, it appears... Uh, that he's talking about future glory and eternity and that we are taken care of. Um, in one of Paul's letters in Corinthians, Paul writes about, he, he talks about the different problems he's had in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, uh, the first chapter, and he says, we, he says, I despaired of even life itself. I didn't know if I was going to live through this situation. And he said, but all these things happened to cause me to rely on God. 
that was the good that came out of all of that difficulty, shipwreck, beatings, whippings, stonings, and all the stuff that Paul went through. It taught him not to rely on himself, but on God. That's how it worked out for his good, learning that we need to rely on the Father. And uh, we do. Uh, I think we all know that by now, looking at the amount of white hair in here. So uh, we depend on him day by day and breath by breath, really. So he's just finished that, and we get to verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. A comment. Uh, a lot of times this verse, verse 29, causes a lot of questions. What exactly is involved in this predestined thing he's talking about? Uh, Peter tells us in first, uh, first Peter chapter 1 that the Lamb of God, Jesus, was known from the foundation of the earth. Before any of this got started, the Lord God, the Father, already knew what his plan was. And he knew he was going to send the Savior to the earth. He knew what was going to happen with him there that he would be a sacrifice for mankind, that he would be raised and ascended, and that his name would be preached among the world, and that those that believed in him, he was going to bring to heaven. All of that he knew. He knew that. I believe God foreknew and planned to bring people who are faithful to him and in our time and in the new covenant, people who are faithful to Jesus bring them to heaven. The whole group, the church that's faithful. Um, as a class, as a group, that was God's plan to save the faithful, save the believers. Always his plan. There have been some who were... Um, foreknown for specific purposes such as Moses, um, Jacob. He, his, his future was laid out as before he was born and he, you know he's born holding Esau's ankle and uh, his, the Lord knew what his future was going to be. And uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah says that as he opens his letter, that he was foreknown by God, this is verse uh, 4 and 5 in chapter 1, before he was born, that he would be a prophet. So God has chosen specific individuals for some jobs, some purposes, I think because he knew who they would be, he knew their hearts, and he knew they would be useful <clears throat> and able to serve him in specific roles. There have been a few like that. I think that uh, I'll give you one more I think and then I'll open it up to what, whatever you think. Foreknowledge does not mean predestination in that you have no choice. Foreknowledge, foreknowledge, knowing beforehand 
does not mean predestined in the sense that you have no free moral agency, you have no choice. Foreknowledge is a completely different word with a completely different meaning than predestined. And God has foreknowledge. And so, um, verse 29, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He knew there would be a class of people, a group of people who would be believers in Jesus, and he planned beforehand to bring them to heaven. That was his plan, to bring the church to heaven. He knew that was going to happen. And then he says, notice this in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called, were called through the gospel, 2 Thessalonians. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that that's all in past tense. To God, it's done. His plan is accomplished. Even though in our timeline, it hasn't been completed Uh, Mankind is still living, and here we are. But in God's mind, in God's knowing time, his plan will be successful, and it's completed. He's already glorified, he says, those whom he justified. He already sees it as done. Hard for us to get that because we live in time. We're not looking at time from the outside and seeing all of it. We're in it, and we can only see right here but he's looking at the whole thing and he knows his plan will be completed. Comments, thoughts, other opinions. Bill. So, I know we talked about, you know, I knew Jesus before the beginning. Predestined and things like that. But in Genesis, right before Noah and the flood, talks about in Genesis 6, he says, you know, I went out, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and every inclination of thoughts, the Lord regretted creating man. He doesn't say it once, but he says it twice in that same little section. So, I feel like, yes, he made it. This is just some generations past getting kicked out of the garden. They wouldn't be aware of God. I don't think anybody could use that excuse. I didn't know God. So that was what he But the fact that he says, I regret it making, man, I mean, it almost seems like to me, I created him, I gave him this free will, so it's a predestined thing doesn't seem to be such a good thing because he said, I regret making you. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like all these people made a choice and just said, you know what, I'm just not going to live for you. So Bill's saying, uh, how does, uh, if God has foreknowledge of what he's planning to do in Genesis 6, before the flood, God regretted making man. And what does that mean? Uh, Two things there, maybe. Um, I don't know the Hebrew that's used there for the word regretted. I think, to me, the idea is, is that he was very displeased with what man was doing, obviously. But it, emotionally, 
bothered that man had gone this route. Uh, I don't think it means that he was surprised by what happened and he had to wipe, wipe the earth clean. I would say, this is my opinion, that's all it is. I think he foreknew what would happen and that he knew there would be a flood and uh, that his son Jesus would come down the road and that he would live on the earth as a sacrifice for everyone and certain people would believe and follow him and they would be rewarded in the sense that they would be brought to heaven. I don't think God was surprised by man's evil behavior, uh, the population of the earth, whatever it was, as much as he was just saddened and all those words, saddened, disappointed, just sorrowful over the whole thing. And I'm not sure how the phrasing in the Hebrew is. That would be interesting to know, uh, but I don't know it. Good thought. One, two. Done. And in, in, uh, as far as I can tell, everybody or, or all the time, God had a plan. But he gave man free will. When, there, when the free will is, goes against God, which in this case it did, it doesn't, doesn't matter because God has a plan. And he, he's able to work that plan out. And amazingly, there was Noah, okay? So he could, you know, start again here. And if his plan is that Jesus would come, I don't care what man does, and he has done a lot of things that disappoint God. God still finds a way to work it out to get to the, to, you know, to get, to fulfill. To accomplish, mm -hmm. yeah, so, yeah. So if you, Don's saying that no matter how it looks to us, is God going to be able to do this or that? It's looking pretty bleak here. God's able to work with people to bring about his, the fruition of his plans. That's just part of, you know, Noah, who would have thunk? Here's one righteous man. I think God saw Noah's heart beforehand and knew he would work with him and would bring about the whole scheme of redemption through Noah. Looked like a pretty thin thread there for a bit. Not to the Lord, though. He knew Noah, what Noah would do, and he knew Noah would survive, and he knew the seed line would continue, and here we are, or begin, I should say, with Abraham. Dave? The, uh, where God regretted making man in Genesis 6-6 six, six says it, it broke his heart. I think, yes, very sorrowful that we had gotten to such a point. Free moral agency. Uh, you know, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus says in Mark 8, um, whosoever would come after me, let him deny himself and follow me. Whosoever, it's open to anyone that will choose to do so. When Jesus left the planet, his last words were to go and preach my story to everyone 
whoever he that believes and is baptized will be saved. It's a matter of choice. What, what we decide, what we choose. John 3.16 we're very familiar with. That he loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoso. So I think there is free moral agency. We have the ability to choose So um, predestined in the sense that he knows what his plan is and he's going to bring it to completion. And those that love and follow him, he is going to bring to live with him. That's his predestined plan. That's how I see that. Okay, let's move on. Um, this next section is... I don't think you could have a more encouraging section in all of Scripture than what we read as he closes the 8th chapter. It's just, uh, it's like God is saying, let me tell them everything I could possibly tell them to give them some peace, to reassure them, to help them to know I'm on their side and I've worked this out for them, even though they're inconsistent and they're dirty. They're weak. They sin. But if they will put their trust and faith in my son and what I'm doing for them, I'm going to give them his righteousness. They're coming into his righteousness. And they will be saved. Uh, so here he goes in uh, verse 31. So what, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? And who can bring any charge against God's chosen or God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Notice, Notice he said, and I've, I've made this comment before, we so often in our prayers, we say, thank you, Lord, uh, for Jesus dying for us. And we just stop there. That is so halfway. That's half of a good prayer. Well, we certainly are thankful he died for us. And thank you, Lord, or in the words of Paul, more than that, who was raised? Of course, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, there's no point in any of this. You're still in your sins. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus dying for our sins and for his resurrection that shows us you are the Lord of life and you have the power over our enemy and we have a future because of the resurrection. The empty tomb is what empowered the first century believers to carry that message. They're so thankful as they learn to appreciate later what that sacrifice on the cross meant, so thankful but they were excited and empowered when they saw him later, out of the grave, resurrected, stronger than death. Whew, now we got something here. 
Now we got something here. Man. Notice uh, um, one of the phrases I read, will he not with him give us all things? Um, in Colossians, the first chapter in the 21 and 22 there, he talks about Jesus being our sacrifice and he says he will present us blameless and without accusation before the Father. Colossians 1, 22. Blameless and without accusation. Well, didn't Gary have a bad temper? Yep. Didn't Gary lie? Yep. Didn't Gary do this? Didn't Gary do that? Yep, 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 yep. Well, here's Gary. Father, here he is. He's blameless. No accusation against him. I've paid for it. It's all paid for. Debt cleared. We struggle, don't we? Um, we need to put more confidence in who God is and in who Jesus is and that he is able to present us blameless because we're in Christ. Blameless and without accusation. Okay, so, uh, so there's the gospel in verse 34. Uh, he died, he's raised, and he's at the right hand of God interceding for us. And then he goes on, who can separate us from God? Nothing, to summarize that. He said, nothing can separate you from the love of the Father. And he lists all these things. You can't be separated from God's love. You can choose to leave. A person can choose to leave. Demas did. Paul said, Demas loved this present world more than than uh, Jesus. So a person can leave. Ananias and Sapphira, they chose to leave. They chose greed and riches over honesty. So they lied about their giving. I think it would have, I think it would have been perfectly fine if they said, Lord, we sold this land for 500 shekels. We're keeping 100 to pay for things and we're giving 400 to the church and I think the apostles would have said that is terrific you gave 80% thank you but they didn't do it that way here's what we got for the land you lied you're greedy so we can choose to leave it's our choice but if we choose to stay, he says, you can't be overpowered. No foreign, no foreign force can come in and pry you away from God's love. He's already sent his son to die for me. He's not going to let anything get in between his love for me and uh, if I am loving him. That's what he says in the end, uh, in that section of Romans 8. Um, so he wants us to know that we're secure. One passage before we leave this and we start chapter 9, but a familiar passage in Hebrews chapter 6. 
God is trying to get the, his point across in the Hebrew letter. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 17 starting. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs, to the believers, the promise and the unchangeable character of his purpose, he did two things. Number one, he said, I'm going to save you. And then number two, just to make sure they got it, he said, I'm swearing an oath that I'm going to save you. It's unchangeable. My commitment to you, because of what's happened at the cross, your sin has been paid for. I'm stronger than death. It's paid for and taken care of. And so he, so he said, his word and an oath he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things which it's impossible for God to lie and the oath, we might have strong encouragement and hold fast to the hope set before us. This is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Of course the Jews knew what that meant. The Holy of Holies, that's where God was in the tabernacle all those years and in the temple only the high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. He says, that's where our hope is. It's behind the curtain. It's in the inner sanctum. It's where God the Father is. It's secured and anchored there. That's because, that's what your relationship with God is and does through Jesus. That's our relationship. And it's anchored in the Father's presence. He's trying to encourage those brothers to stay faithful. Chapter 9, he's gone through all of these uh, great blessings these people have, these believers have. And Romans 8, I mean, it's just powerful how, <coughs> excuse me, how he lays it on over and over to reassure them, you are secure. And then he gets to chapter 9, and he's very saddened because he looks at his own people, the Jewish nation, and for the most part, they've left. They've said, we don't believe in Jesus. He's not the kind of Messiah that we want. We want a king that's a military leader that will free us from Rome. We want to be freed from these shackles Rome has put on us. They should have been thinking we want to be free from the shackles sin has put on us. They were focused on the wrong set of shackles. And Paul's very sad about that. So it says in verse 1 and 2, that he's grieved of chapter 9. He says, I wish I could take your place. I wish I could take the place of my people and be cut off from Christ if they would come. But they won't. The Messiah was not what they expected. You know, many today, we put conditions on God too when God is not who we expected. 
God doesn't want me to uh, change this or that lifestyle. Not my God. You ever hear that? I've heard it. My God wouldn't say this or that's wrong. This is true love. And we, ch- we, we refashion God after our own image. Our country's full of that. Up to here. We've forgotten that the, what the Almighty, who He is. Huh. We've forgotten who we are. Someone I, boy, look at me. I'm, a, I'm in a real position here to tell God how he ought to, what, how it ought to be. That, you know, I disagree with Paul on this. I disagree with Peter on that, you know. <laughs> well, that's where the Jews were back in the day, and they rejected the Messiah because he was not the one they want. He was not the kind of leader they were wanting. So they rejected him. Then he gets into this section, and he's brought this up before. Verse 6 of chapter 9. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise are counted as offspring. The Jews put a lot of stock in their heritage. We have Abraham as our father. Was that John the Baptist or Jesus they told that? Or maybe both of them. You know, John John was baptizing people in the river and he saw the Pharisees coming up there and he, he looks up and he says, you brood of vipers, who told you to repent from the wrath that's coming? He said, don't, don't talk about being Abraham's offspring. God could raise up from these stones children to Abraham. You're focused on the wrong thing. Jesus had the same conversation with the priests and rabbis in John chapter 8. And they were talking about Abraham as our father. And he said, no, if if Abraham was your father, you'd be doing the things that Abraham did. He said, your father is the devil. And you do the things he does. And he was a liar and a murderer. And that's what they did. They lied about the resurrection. They paid off the guards to lie about the resurrection. And they had the Messiah killed. He said, your, your father's the devil. Just because you are Jewish doesn't mean you're God's children. And that's the point Paul's making through this section there, 6, 7, and 8. It's not physical lineage that matters. It's the heart. So Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I'd rather have mercy instead than sacrifice. I'm not concerned about the form I want your heart. 
You know, when Samuel was choosing David, he couldn't find the one God wanted. And then God had him to ask her, are there any more sons? And Jesse said, well, we've got one more. Bring him up here. And then God tells Samuel, you look on the outside, you look on the appearance of a man, I look on the heart. God has always wanted the heart. That was a problem the Jewish leaders had. They thought because of their heritage of being Jews that they were God's people, and it was just repugnant to them that Samaritans or any other group like us could be God's children. Non-Jewish. That just, they'd always been God's children. Man, they had drifted away so many times from so long back. They had long since stopped being God's favored. Long since. So Paul's getting to that right here. And he goes through a section there talking about how God works through time, works with people. But I want to look at verse 8 one more time. I mean, you know, Paul brought this up way back at the beginning of the letter in, in Romans 2. He brought the same argument up. It's, it's not the flesh, it's the heart. So in verse 8 again, this means it, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise who are counted as God's offspring. The children of the promise. So God told Abraham, I promise you, number one in Genesis 12, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. There's a promise. Number two, he said, I promise you're going to have a son, your own son. Your own son with Sarah. Not the manservant, Eliezer, that's in your tent. Not any of the sons of these concubines. Your son with Sarah. Promise. Genesis 15, verse 6, when God told him that, the passage says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God's promise. He uses that same parallel, Paul, the same writer of Romans here. Paul uses the same parallel when he writes the Galatian letter. In chapter 3, verse 26, we're children of God by faith. 27, for as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptized into Christ have put on Christ. They didn't pray into Christ. They're baptized into Christ. And then he says in 28 and 29, he talks about, let me find my spot. Uh, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free. All who are in Christ, if you're a Christ, you're Abraham's offspring and children of the promise. Abraham's offspring and children of the promise. That's to anybody who is baptized into Christ. Jew or Gentile. There's no differentiation in the, in the church, in the new covenant. It used to be the Jews against the world in the old covenant. 
Although God had always planned to save the Gentiles too. He'd always, that was in his plan. When he told Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Gentiles were in his plan way back in Genesis 12. But up until the time of Christ, it was the Jews against the world. Now we get to the new covenant and he says, there's no Jew or Greek. All are the same in Jesus. All are the same. And if you're in Jesus, you are children of the promise. Because you believe God's promise. That whoever comes to Jesus and commits to him becomes a part of God's family, is saved. That's God's promise. That's the promise he's talking about in Romans 8 that we were just reading about. We're children of the promise in Jesus. Seven minutes. Perfect. Or as they say in a lot of restaurants, perfect. You ever notice that? Perfect. I want some cheese on that. Perfect. See, where was I this week? I was... I went to U-Haul. I was seeing about a rental truck. I told him I needed a 20-foot truck. I'm taking this first load out. We're planning to go in April, taking the first load. I said, I need to change from a 26-foot to a 20-foot. He said, perfect. Come up with something else. I think a 20, think a 20 foot will do you. That ought to work all right. Okay, good. We'll change it. Now, perfect. Okay. All right, so let's look at verse 24. He talks about, in verse 23, what God had planned beforehand for glory. Even us, 24, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. The Gentiles. They were not my people, now I'm going to call them my people. They're going to become my people. Hosea talked about that. God had always planned to save the Gentiles too to make it available to us as well. And in the very place, verse 26, the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called there, they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out, though Israel numbers, now watch this, this is, this is pretty rough right here, this is brutal. As Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant shall be saved of the nation of Israel. He said most of them will not accept the Messiah. And he uses a parallel that Isaiah used about the captivity of Israel into Syria where only a remnant came back to Palestine. He uses that same parallel applying it here to salvation. 
this is what he's talking about here is God's children. Only a remnant will be saved. The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if, I, if the Lord of hosts hadn't left us offspring, we'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We'd be totally wiped out. But a remnant, he says, will be saved. There were believing Jews, but the leaders didn't, most of them, and they led the nation astray. And today in Israel, most Israelis, I don't know the percentages, they're either agnostic, they don't believe in God, or they're still waiting for a military king to come and establish Israel as a world power. They're missing the, what the Messiah is all about. There are Messianic Jews that do believe in Jesus. They're in the minority. Israel's unbelief, we've got about two minutes here. As he closes the chapter, verse 30 and 31 and 2, what shall we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness by faith. And the Jews who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness didn't make it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but they pursued it based on works. They stumbled over it. They stumbled. The Gentiles, who were not my people, they've become open to the message of the cross by faith. The Jews, who were my people, wanted to hold on to the law. They didn't want to give it up. We like our tradition. We like, we've got Moses and the prophets. We've got Abraham. We like right where we are. We're God's chosen people. No matter how we live. <laughs> said, no. I'm looking for hearts. I'm looking for hearts. He talks about Alay as he closes the chapter. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The Pharisees, the priests, were offended by Jesus and they set out to kill him. You remember the passage if we don't stop this man and get rid of him, He's going to bring. He's going to sway the whole people to follow him, and we'll lose our place and our nation. So they set out to kill him, so they wouldn't lose their position. The Romans will come in and wipe us out if we let him keep going like this. They were offended, but whosoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. Close with this verse, and we'll be done. It goes back to the security. One of my favorite verses, Hebrews chapter 10. And this goes right along with what he said. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time, all time perfected, done for all time, those who are being sanctified, being made holy. Work in progress. Those who are being made holy. Work in progress. We're a work in progress. But in Jesus, we have been perfected for all time because we're in Jesus and he's perfect. 
So it's not our righteousness that we depend on, it's his. For those in Christ, he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. We're learning, we're maturing, we're a work in progress. So this week, let's just keep working on it. Thanks for your time. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.